0: Acts chapter 20, and a completely different type of message today than I normally would bring on a Sunday morning. I'll tell you in a few minutes why I'm bringing it, and it's entirely different. It's, uh, it's almost like me having a little family talk with the church membership here today, and if you're a guest, I'm glad you're listening in, and uh, Acts chapter 20, and as soon as you find it, will not you stand with me as we, we read the Word of God together, please. Acts chapter 20. And verse number 17, Acts twenty seventeen. And from Miletus, Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church. And when they were come to him, he said unto them, You know from the first day that I came into Asia, after what manner I have been with you at all seasons, serving the Lord with all humility of mind, And with many tears and temptations which befell me by the lying in wait of the Jews. And how I kept back nothing that was profitable unto you. But have showed you and have taught you publicly and from house to house. Testifying both to the Jews and also to the Greeks. Repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. That's just the gospel in a nutshell, isn't it? And now behold, I go bound in the Spirit. Unto Jerusalem, not knowing the things that shall befall me there. Save that the Holy Ghost witnesseth in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions abide or await me. None of these things move me, neither count I my life dear unto myself, so that I might finish my course with joy and the ministry which I have received of the Lord Jesus to testify the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, I know that you all, among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God, shall see my face no more. Wherefore, I take you to record this day that I am pure from the blood of all men. For I have not shunned to declare unto you all the counsel of God. Take heed, therefore, unto yourselves and to all the flock. Now, he's speaking to preachers here. He's speaking to the elders in verse 17. He says, take heed unto the, unto yourself, first of all, and to all the flock over which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers, to feed the church of God, which he hath purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after many, uh, after my departing, shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. And also out of your own selves shall men arise, speaking perverse things, to draw away disciples after them. Therefore, watch and remember that by the space of three years, and Paul was in Ephesus about three years, I ceased not to warn every one of you night and day with tears. And now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among all of them which are sanctified. You may be seated. This is certainly one of the most poignant scenes in all of the Bible and certainly in the New Testament, I think. Here we have the Apostle Paul. He has now been arrested and he is being transported to Rome where he will ultimately be martyred. He will be beheaded there. He'll spend a couple or three years there in Rome going through a trial process sentencing and so on then he will lose his head people forget that Paul was beheaded under Nero and as he goes on the trip the ship stops at a place called Miletus and it was about 15 or 20 miles from Ephesus where he had spent three years pastoring and planting a church and from that church had gone out men who were now pastoring in other areas And when they hear that Paul's ship is going to stop over for a day or two in Miletus, they go there 15 miles away, and they visit Paul. And it's a sad occasion because they know it's the last time they will ever see him. And so Paul gathers them. Can you imagine him gathering around these young preachers? And he's instructing them in how they are to conduct their ministries. And... In verse 36, it really gets very emotional if you read it and think about it. After he had told them what he wanted to tell them, and when he had thus spoken, he kneeled down, and he prayed with them all. And they all wept sore, and they fell on Paul's neck, and they kissed him. Now, men did that, and they still do it over there in Eastern Europe. That sounds a little strange to us, but... I never will forget going to the Soviet Union. I've never been kissed by so many men so many times. (laughs) It's been 20 years. I'll tell you about it now. But it's kind of an awkward feeling, I'll tell you. But they, strictly on the cheek, in fact, on both cheeks. And that's what's going on here. It's an Eastern custom. They all wept sore. You picture it, though, Paul is kneeling down on the sand. And they come up and they put their arms around him. And they kiss him as was the custom, sorrowing most of all for the words which he spake that they would see his face no more. And then they accompany him to the ship and he got in the ship and of course he went to Rome. Why would I bring a message like with that kind of uh, overtones to you today? Well. I don't normally preach like this on Sunday morning. In fact, every time I've ever preached on pastoral leadership, I preached on it on Sunday night. Cuz I figured, you know, that Sunday morning I want to always be evangelistic and have a warm, positive evangelistic uh, worship service. But let me tell you why I'm doing this. 3 times in the last few months. 3 times. Pastors have rung my phone or gone to lunch with me or come to see me. And they've told me a heartbreaking tale. Three different occasions and another one or two on the phone. And I listened to these men, all of them honorable pastors of Baptist churches, and I listened to a tragic story in all cases. All of them very similar, too, by the way. There were no accusations made against these men of moral impurity. There was no allegations made about financial impropriety. All of these men were doctrinally sound. They preached the word of God faithfully, and yet, they had been fired from their churches. All three of them were absolutely broken-hearted men one of them said at my age no church will ever again call me so effectively my ministry has been taken from me some group in every in all cases had risen up in the church and decided that they were going to assume the leadership of the church in one case the pastor brought me the written complaints of the people who were trying to get him fired from his position and I read them honestly it sounded so childish. I just about—I thought, how in the world could anybody do it, be doing God's business at that kind of level? It sounded like it came out of the youth department. And excuse me, kids. I thought grown Christian people oughtn't to be having a church squabble about this kind of stuff. It is purely preferential. He, one of the preachers, asked me what. He said, what would you do? I said, I'd call Marco. Not Margo, Marco. He said, who's Marco? I said, oh, he's a guy I got to know that I preached down in Florida. And he came up and he and I hit it off. And he said, Reverend, if you ever need me, give me a call. My family's the head of the Miami Mafia. (laughs) That's what I'd do with that crowd you're dealing with over there right now. I just call Marco. If you want his phone number, I got it here on my phone. I've never had to call him yet at our church, but I'm keeping the number just done. You know, in the nation, we understand something. We elect a president and put him in charge of things, and good, bad, or indifferent, why, we've elected him. And in the military, we get a general, and he leads the army. In the corporation, we we hire a CEO. He runs the corporation. In sports, we get a head coach, and we turn it over, and, boy, we watch him gyrate and carry on and run up and down the sidelines and cuss and rant and rave and do whatever he wants to do. But he's the coach, and uh, we don't have a committee that runs the football team, do we? And um, when we have an orchestra, we get a conductor. And when we have, you know, when you get on an airplane or on a ship that you have put yourself under the authority of the most dictatorial person you'll ever put yourself under their authority, that in the event of a crisis, that captain has all the legal authority in the whole world and he doesn't have to ask anybody. And we never think about that. But yet when it comes to the church, we think we're not quite sure about who ought to lead the church. Now, I'm preaching this before I need to preach it. I don't really, I'm not dealing with a problem if y'all are getting antsy on me here. I'm not dealing with a problem. I'm telling you what you need to know before you need to know it, okay? Or in anticipation. It's, it's a preventive message. But we have forgotten a lot about what leadership is in fact here in the last few years this phrase has become popular in the country leading from behind leading from behind there ain't no such thing leaders go in front leading from behind is like it's an oxymoron it's like grape nuts it isn't a grape and it isn't a nut Leaders don't go from behind. Leaders walk in front, and they get shot at, and they they get rewarded as well. I was so happy when uh, President-elect Trump appointed General Mathis, James Mathis, to be the Secretary of Defense. Man, I told my wife, "Yeah." <laughs> Sitting in front of the TV, and she said, "Do you know that guy?" I said, "No, I've heard about him. They call him Mad Dog." I like a secretary of defense who's mad dog. (laughs) Man, that gets my juices flowing. But you know what I really like about General Mathis? General Mathis is a brilliant man. He carried with him to Iraq a 7,000-volume library. Ah, leaders are readers. And General Mathis reads Marcus Aurelius and Aristotle and Plato and wow I'm pretty impressed with a guy like that in our world today and General Mathis is a man of compassion and heart he's not only tough and mad dog he got in his car on his own nickel and drove from New England all the way to California and back and visited in the home of every Marine who had been killed in Iraq and Afghanistan, and personally sat down with the family and visited in their home. I can follow a man like that. I can follow a man like that. Now, God's plan has always been a man, not a committee, not a board. a man it's God's plan through the Bible it's always been that committees have their places boards have their places but the place is never to replace the man I'm preaching this I'm preaching to two audiences I'm preaching to y'all I will tell you part of my message today you know where I'm directing it We have a vast television audience. I'm preaching to the members of a hundred little Baptist churches across our TV audience who need to understand God's plan in your church out there is for you to call a man of God and follow him and quit fighting him all the time. So I'm preaching for that audience out there. It breaks my heart that these little churches that are so inept and, 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 and not making the impact, and they can't do anything because they, they stay in this constant state of, of war between themselves. And it, God's plan is a man, do you, you know what a camel is, don't you? A camel is a horse put together by a Baptist committee. God designed the horse and committee came along and messed it up. In the Old Testament, when God wanted a leader, he appointed a man named Moses. A group of people rose up against him. And God didn't have Margot, he gave him all leprosy. <laughs> Pretty rough, huh? And then in, later on he needed a king named David, a warrior king. A man who could write the 23rd Psalm, but a man who was so tough also that he could go and defend the nation from the, from the Philistines, and who as a boy, went out and defeated a giant named Goliath. And when he needed a man to lead the first church, Acts chapter 2, and Peter standing up among them, standing up, not leading from behind, standing up. And Peter led the church of God. And then when he needed the apostle to the Gentiles, there was the apostle Paul. Here in the book of Acts, we see a wonderful exposition of the responsibilities and roles of a pastor. Verse 17 from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and he called the elders of the church. Circle the word elder in your Bible. I want you to know that because someday when I'm not here, you're going to be thinking about another pastor. And I want you to understand that this message is very important for those days, whenever that comes. Although, I want to remind you, my grandmother lived 114. <laughs> so, uh, just don't make any plans yet. Now, I'll, I'll, tell, you when, I'll tell you when it's time, okay? Somebody said, well, we, 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 just need an, we just need a new broom, and uh, we just need a sweep cleaner. And the fellow said, no, the old broom knows where all the dirt is. <laughs> right? Knows where all the dirt is. I know where all the dirt is around here. Okay, verse 17, the elders of the church. The word elder translated from, from the Greek is presbyteros. Presbyteros, I think is the way they appropriately pronounce it. Presbyterist. and from that we get presbyterian or presbytery and that's one form of church government presbyterians and they elect elders to to direct their churches and then in verse 28 we have another word same word four titles used interchangeably to describe a pastor's duties Take heed to yourself and to all the flock over which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseer. There's the next word. And if you want to draw your little line out there, you can go over and compare it to 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3, where the same word is translated bishop. Now look right here, overseer is translated bishop from a word called Episcopos, Greek. The Greek word is Episcopos, and we have the Episcopalian, a different type of church government. Episcopalian church government is government by the bishops. Presbyterianism is government by the elders. And so in verse 17, we have the elders, the presbyters. In verse 28, we have the bishops or the overseers, who feed the church of God, which he hath purchased with his own blood. And then in the middle of verse 28, we have another uh, res- another uh, description of the pastor's role. And it says, the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers to feed the church. Now, that term, feed the church, comes from a Greek word, poimen, P-O-I-M-E-N. And I don't want to bore you with Greek, and I don't know that much of it anyhow, but I, I know enough of it. But poyman simply means a shepherd. So, and so this is the, the, the grammatical form of it here that means to shepherd the flock. So the overseer also shepherds the flock. And in Ephesians chapter 5, the same word, poyman is translated to be pastor. So you have four words, and they all describe the same person. What is a pastor? I am the elder. I am an an elder in this church. And secondly, I am the bishop of this church. You didn't know that, did you? Bishop Bill is what you may call me from now on. (laughs) I am an elder. You know that, yeah. And I'm a bishop, and I'm a pastor slash shepherd. Those are my God-ordained roles. Every pastor, Big church, small church, all church, God's Word, that's just simply a teaching from the Word of God. Now, I want to show you the role of the pastor. Verse 28, look at that word overseer again. He is to be the overseer. The Holy Ghost has made him the overseer. Strong terms. I I would like to tell those three churches where these four pastors have been run off, literally, I would like to tell them that the Holy Ghost made that man the overseer of that church. And unless he acts in a way that's unscriptural, then they should follow him. Now if he's immoral or he's, he's dishonest, if there's no integrity, then you should get rid of him. But God's word calls him the overseer. And I want you to flip over now to 1 Timothy chapter 3. The first responsibility of the pastor above all others is he is to lead. He is to lead the flock. 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 1. This is a true saying. If a man desire the office of a bishop, Acts calls him an overseer. An episkopos, if you want to use the Greek... And then it gives the qualifications he must have, which I don't have time to go into today. But in verse 5, I want you to notice this. It says he is to rule, meaning he is to lead. If a man don't know how to rule his own house, how shall he take care of the church of God? If he can't lead his own family, he can't lead the church. Go over to chapter number 5 and verse number 17. Let the elders that rule well, it never says that about the deacons, never says that about the finance committee, never says that about any organization in a church. It's the elders, the overseers, the episcopos, and the presbyters that are to rule well according to this. In fact, they're even to be given honor because of the position that they hold. Turn to Hebrews chapter 13 and verse number 7. This is an important verse because in every church listening to me, you folks who are listening to me out here in the PD and wherever you may be in North Carolina or whatever, this is what your pastor is to be doing. This is his job description, if you will. Hebrews 13 and 7. Remember them which have the rule over you. There's his leadership. Number one, then the pastor is to lead. Number two, he is to speak the word of God, who have spoken unto you the word of God. And thirdly, he is to be an example of the very faith that he preaches, whose faith follow, considering the end of their conversation or their lifestyle. So the pastor's duties are threefold. He is to lead, rule. He is to speak the word of God. It's not his opinion. It is what God's word says that most counts. And he is to be an example in his lifestyle of the faith that he says he proclaims. Now, go on down to verse 17. It says it again. I'm making the point that the role of the pastor in a church is to lead that church. And I'm showing you scripture to support it. And in verse 17, obey them that have the rule over you and submit yourselves to them. For they watch for your souls that they may give an account. Look at those words. If the pastor is a sincere man of God, he is altogether concerned about the souls of the people who are under his leadership. He is watching for their souls. And he will have to give an account for it. Here's one more verse says the pastor's role is to lead. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 5. In fact, there are other verses. This is the last one we'll look at. 1 Peter chapter 5, turning to the right in your Bible. 1 Peter 5 and 2. Feed the flock of God which is among you, preacher. Then taking the oversight thereof. Now you see any place there for the, very? pardon me for being so blunt, but for the deacons to run the church and just tell the pastor he preaches and that keep his place? You see room for that there in these verses I've been reading you? But that's the way it's done in South Carolina and that's why every Baptist church splits about every five years. And sometimes it's the pastor's fault. Sometimes it's not. Often it's not. Because it's hard for different groups. You know, you can't have competing groups for the authority of the church's leadership. Thank God we've never had that. It might start tomorrow, but we've never had that in 47 years here. And I thank you people for your wonderful cooperative spirit. What is the pastor to lead in the church? Listen, read my lips. Everything. Everything. Amen. Well, when I get enough amens, I'll, re- I'll get on the next word here. <laughs> Everything. Amen. Everything. I had a wonderful friend. I didn't know him that well, but he was a friend. I loved him. Homer Lindsay, First Baptist Church, Jacksonville, Florida. Built it in the largest church in the Southern Baptist Convention. And Homer went to the First Baptist Church right downtown Jacksonville. Owned five, acre, five city blocks of property down there. He said, I, He said that church was run by 100 committees, and it was absolute chaos. He said, I understand why they dwindled down to nothing. And he said, I gradually just sort of took leadership, everything. But I have one group over here. It was the Women's Missionary Union. And we had this group of ladies. And they were real old ladies, you know, in the church. They've been there forever. And this one lady, and she opposed everything I did. And he said, I prayed, and I thought, and the time went by, and I thought, what can I do to get her out of there so I can get everybody, everything, even the Women's Missionary Union behind me following me as the pastor of the church? So he said, I went and joined the Women's Missionary Union. And I sat in there for a few weeks, and then they had the election. And he said, I put my name in nomination to be elected. And they elected me, the only pastor in the United States who was also the president of the Women's Missionary Union. And he said, Do you know what happened in our church? Glorious, wonderful unity broke out. And everybody had a cooperative spirit. And the next year we had the largest women's missionary union in all the state of Florida at First Baptist Church. He was even the the pastor of of the of the of the missionary union. And so Adrian Rogers said it better than anybody always did. Adrian always said it better. He said, Anything with no head is dead. And anything with two heads is a monstrosity. You get it? You ever remember going to the state fair when you were a little kid and they had a little freak show tent over here and you went in there and they had in a bottle a calf with two heads on it? It's a freak. The first freak Baptist church has two heads. (laughs) Y'all don't have my sense of humor. You haven't listened to those preachers like I have, and I'm making some of you uncomfortable, and that's okay. You'll get over it. And then when the flock is too large, it's a pastor can't take care of everything, and his duties are too numerous. He appoints others, and we call them Staff members, they come and serve with him. And so the pastor delegates to them specific duties. And so we need somebody to lead our youth. And we need somebody to conduct our music. Do you know what this Christmas tree would be like if I tried to lead the Christmas tree? (laughs) There'd be Norma and I watching the Christmas tree. I couldn't do that. And uh, you have a Christian school, you need a principal in the school. And you have all these ministries and you need people who have been led of the Lord to come there and to join with you in that. But you're still the leader. You don't say, you know, now we have just, uh, we have a cooperative type thing. No, you've you've still got to come back and fix that responsibility like they do everywhere else. And what is to be the style of the pastor's leadership? Because so often these church problems come out of style more than anything. Most of the ones I've been talking to, it's an issue of style. Well, look over in 1 Peter chapter 5 again with me. 1 Peter chapter 5. And there it says in verse number 3. Neither being lords over God's heritage, but being examples of the flock. Neither being a lord over God's flock. Meaning, you can't be arrogant if you're a leader. And you're to walk humbly before the Lord and softly before the people. And you are to, you're to be a man of graciousness and a man of integrity and a man of you care about the people under your leadership but you're still the leader you're not even always right like rush um limbaugh about 99.4 percent you know but you're not always right no pastor's always right but he is to he's to not lord over he's not to be an autocrat and the pastor's not to be a dictator He's always to be a man of grace and the love of the Lord. The fruit of the Spirit ought to dominate his life. And to whom is the pastor accountable? Hebrews chapter 13, 7 says he's accountable to God. He's accountable to God. If you think you'd like my job, one day I will stand before God. He's got all eternity for the judgment. I don't know if it'll be like that or not, but he may call the membership role of the Florence Baptist Temple. What about this one and this one and this one and this one and this one? And I have to give an account. Lord, that one strayed. That one wouldn't listen to anything I ever did, but I did try. I know you tried, Bill. But what about that one? Didn't you, wasn't there some area of neglect there? Oh, Lord, I'm I'm afraid. He will give an account for their souls. And sometimes in my life, I have been in situations where I said, I don't know if I want any more members or not. I've got too many already now to give account for. I heard John MacArthur say that. He said, I want to grow and reach people for Christ, but I already got a lot of people to give an account for and I'm accountable to God. And you know what else? I'm accountable to you. I'm not accountable to the predators, and I'm not accountable to the bishops. Thank the Lord. I'm accountable to my flock, the congregation. And you do have a responsibility as a congregation to see that I carry out those duties. Financially, this church has more financial accountability than any church I've ever been to Right now, we have two CPAs who audit our books. Leonard Hoganboom and Nancy Waring, two local CPAs. So they they turn over every rock. They know where what happens to every penny. And I want it like that because about $8 million a year flows through this church and that school. And I, I don't want there to be, ever be any hint of impropriety. And then when it comes to Moral impropriety, then you see my life. And there was a time I could have gotten away with a lot. I tell you what, if I if I were going to sin big, I'd leave South Carolina because <laughs> somebody would see me. But that might be a good thing too, mightn't it? Because people, that way, you're holding me morally and spiritually accountable, and you see the work that I do. And if if it were to become Wrong, then you would see that. I must hurry real rapidly, but I do want you to see one other verse, and it's in Isaiah chapter 55, because it summarizes what I've, everything I've been saying now for all this message. Isaiah chapter 55, and it's an Old Testament verse that sort of describes God's plan of leadership. Behold, I have given him, he was referring to David, for a witness to the people, a leader and a commander to the people. And I heard Oswald J. Smith. Or I read Oswald J. Smith's little booklet on leadership. And this is what he quoted. This is God's plan of leadership. It's always been. I've given him for a witness to the people, a leader and a commander of the people. Now, real quickly with me, will you turn back to uh, Acts chapter 20 for just two minutes or so? Acts chapter 20 I want you to see one other thing there in verse 28 I've focused on the leadership because of the problems that I know have been occurring in in our part of the world and around the country in Baptist churches and I said you know what I'm going to get in front of that curve before I have to deal with something like that ever and in Acts chapter number 20 and verse number 28 Take heed unto yourselves and all the flock over which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers to feed the church of God. My first point and overwhelmingly biggest one, 80% of the message, the role of the pastor is to lead. The role of the pastor number two is to feed, verse 28, to feed the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. And you ought to be able to expect when you walk in the doors of this church, my pastor is going to open the book of God. And my pastor is going to talk to me out of the book of God. And he's going to expound the scriptures, illustrate it, and apply it in such a manner that when I walk out of here, I can live my life according to the word of God. And that's why I encourage you to always bring your Bible to church. And follow with me in the Bible. And you will know then, am I preaching the truth or am I just preaching my own thoughts about a situation? So the role of the pastor is to lead. The role of the pastor is to feed. And the role of the pastor is to protect. Verse number 29, I know that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. Paul said, expect it. People are going to come into your church and, out there, and, and they're even going to speak perverse things in verse 30 to draw away disciples after them. And so the pastor, the, in verse 29, Paul, Paul describes these people seeking to, to, to divide churches as wolves attacking the flock, bringing in false doctrine, bringing in division, being troublemakers in their spirit. And so when I tell you, Call Marco. I'm not so far out of bounds, am I? God said, you, 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 you call the mafia on those wolves. You, you, you deal with that. A preacher needs to be the nicest man who ever lived. And then when he meets a wolf, <clears throat> he needs to be a fighter. And when we preachers lose our will to fight then we're going to lose our church to the wolves. And so there's got to be that side of a pastor's personality to drive off the wolves. Now, so the role of the pastor is threefold. To lead, to feed, and to fight the wolves. To protect his flock, not to fight for his own self, but to protect his flock. And above all, above all, oh, hear me, above all though, it is to point men to Jesus Christ. The first Baptist preacher was a man named John. And somebody came to him and said, John, what you're doing in your ministry? He says, I'm pointing people to Christ. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And he pointed people away from himself. It wasn't about John. He pointed them to the Lord Jesus, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of mankind. And then listen to what that Baptist preacher said. He must increase, but I must decrease. I'm here to get people focused on the Lord Jesus. Listen, five minutes after you die, nobody will care what profession you were in how much money you made, what happened in your lifetime. Five minutes after you're gone, there'll be one thing that counts. Where is he? Where is she? Are you in the presence of the Lord? Are you absent from the body and present with the Lord? Yesterday morning at 11 a.m. before we had the tree, I had a funeral of a wonderful, beautiful lady named Terry, Terry, I just drew a blank. Terry Watts, thank you. And Terry had been suffering for months and months and months. And I stood over her coffin, remembering a conversation I had with her about, oh, six weeks ago, I went to McLeod Hospital on a Saturday. And I sat there and talked with Terry for at least an hour. And we went over the plan of salvation. And she said to me, Pastor, I'm not afraid to die. In fact, right now, it will be a relief for me. And soon I will see the face of Jesus that I love. What a joy to stand up. And it really is all that matters, isn't it? I mean, I talked about her life, what a good person she was, and how she stuck with her kids and all that. That's what's important. And that's what I want for every one of you in this room. That's why I'm stressing this witnessing thing, and we'll be back on it as soon as the tree is over. I want us to make Jesus increase. I want us to make Jesus look good every time we have a church service. Bow your head with me if you will.